0: Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year. I am Olga Zedievich, the Head of Investor Relations at Village Global. I am pleased to introduce my guest today, Alex Chalunkal. He is the Chief Investment Officer of a family office, where he manages a portfolio focused on venture capital and climate technology investing. Previously, he was the Head of Venture and Growth Investments at Serengeti Asset Management, investing over a billion dollars in private markets, spanning venture capital, structured products public and private sector restructurings, and other credit instruments over a nine-year period. In today's interview, we will discuss the current investing environment, debt in the technology sector, and what founders need to know about structured equity and opportunities in climate technology today. Alex, welcome to the Village Global Podcast. Thanks for having me on tell us about your path to becoming a CIO and being responsible for everything from asset allocation to investment execution across all asset classes from your time on Wall Street, where you mainly focused on credit and gross equity. Uh would be great to hear about your observations, where the worlds of Wall Street and tech overlap, how they're different, and what edge does your background give you?
1: Yeah, thanks, Olga. No, that's, that's, that's a great way to start. I think uh, just thinking back, right, just thinking of areas that gave me the skill set to be here where I am today, I think it was that broad background that really helped. I think it was, I think back to like, we. I started my career in the summer of 08 when the world was breaking down, essentially. We were just lucky to have jobs. Like, I remember it was 20% of my class that graduated with a job and the rest were just like, you know, searching. And my first gig out of school was restructuring venture equity. And then slowly that transitioned into UBS, which was structured products. And then the last nine years at Serengeti was a mix between structured products, private equity, and then last four years, as you know, venture debt and venture equity, right? So I think having that broad base really helps when it comes to when you think about allocations for a family office, particularly, right? Because you're thinking through. Short duration, long duration, multiple aspects of the risk spectrum, right? For for example, just to give an example there, like we would structure products, we would look at portfolios of 50,000 homes, right? And and But at the same time, in the subprime crisis, your returns on some of these super levered bonds were dependent on two zip codes or two MSAs, you know? So you had to be really granular. So that ability to zoom out and zoom in at the same time I think was really valuable having views on the macro as well as the micro of like hey which zip code will see a Costco come in or which zip code will see a Starbucks come in made all the difference for the bonds you know so I think that that skill set is extremely important as folks look to grow into their roles I think that ability to zoom out and zoom in I think in this market where everything is you're you're just pounded with data every day I think that's an extremely important, you know, skill set when it comes to think about when when we think about allocation, right? And what makes family office unique is, I think, it's not necessarily and it sounds a bit weird, but it's not always ROI driven, right? You have to focus a lot more on utility functions. Like when you're, you know, when you're sometimes worth a lot of money, like be it billion or even half a billion plus, you're not necessarily driven by making ten percent every year. You know, yes, that's important but how you deploy that matters. So you start thinking of what are your constraints you're working around? Like what, like, is it climate? Is it mental health? Is it impact? Like what are what are Gen 2 and Gen 3's issues? Do they, you know, mental issues or anything, right? So that becomes important. So working around those constraints and optimizing for ROI, that's been a lot of fun last year. And I think it'll continue to be because you're, And I would rather take that. I would rather take 50 constraints and five good team members versus five constraints and 50 bad team members. You know, so I think that that definitely doing more with less has been a big theme for uh, at least at least on the on the family office side. So that's yeah, I think that that's how I would say some of the differences that come up for me.
0: Let's let's move on to, you know, we are at the beginning of the year, everyone likes to talk about predictions. And um, I typically find that it's interesting to talk about predictions, which are not yet priced in, right, which are not consensus. So let's talk about what you see in the market, you know, what's consensus? Why is it important to understand what that is? And then what are some of the non-consensus predictions that are out there?
1: Yeah, so let's go through the consensus view, right? And I think, Most of the market is converging around a a couple of these themes. So I'll I'll walk through them, right? So one is so short duration fixed income is super attractive, right? Like six-month treasuries are sitting at close to five percent. Extremely attractive piece of paper at this point. So everyone is definitely converging on the shorter end of the term structure on fixed income versus longer end. On the economy as a whole, general consensus is that we're headed into a mild recession. So volatility will continue to the first half of 23, and that public equity will continue to struggle, at least in the first half of 23. And then the consensus is that some of the labor tightening that Fed wants to see will come through towards the middle, and then you'll start to see that improvement come into the markets in the second half. Now, equity markets have a way of getting ahead of itself, so you could see some some relief earlier on, but again, I don't know. But that's kind of the consensus view. And the other part uh, of the view here is sectors, um, renewables and energy transition, definitely a topical sector. Healthcare, we have an aging population and a low birth rate. So healthcare is definitely front and center. And then climate tech. So these are kind of the three sectors that people ascribe a lot of value or are focused on. And then of course, with China being topical, I've, I've I've been surprised by this, and I've not spent a lot of time, uh, diligencing this. But China equity, surprisingly, has come up on a lot of uh, CIO meetings and consensus board views, right? So that's been a that's been a surprising one. Here's where I differ. Three areas, right? One is the labor tightening. I think that they I think the market is definitely off on that. I'll come to that in a second. Number two is the view on the long-term rate curve. So right now, as of now, the rate curve is inverted, like treasury curve is inverted. So like 4.6, 4.7 percent yields out does like six months, seven months, and then it like the the five-year sits sub four. So it's clearly like you know that's that, it's a recessionary signal, but it's inverted, and I think there's some mispricing there, which I'll come to in a second. That's number two, and then the third being the Similar to how I saw the subprime crisis, there is a problem between the correlation between real estate and climate change that is not priced in the market today. So let's—I'll just go through each of them, right? So wh- what I mean by being off on labor, again, we like to look at broader numbers. It's a zoomed-out view that as of now, there's roughly four to six million job postings out there. That it's a record level job postings out there sitting on unfulfilled. Like it's the highest gap it's been in decades, right? And that's what the Fed is focused on. Hey, we need to get that tighter. We need to get that, rein that in so that you kind of unemployment kicks up and you have some level of control in the labor market because right now it's too hot. And you look at the details, you zoom in and you look at where the largest persistency sits in the labor market, it sits in hyper-specialized sectors. And what I mean by that is like if you look at tech companies like A W, like uh, Azure, A W S, or uh, you know Google, the newer companies that have built really innovative platforms are hyper specialized in the sense of look at like Databricks that built on Spark or Confluent that built on Kafka. These are again very hyper specialized companies that sit on top and require very specialized skill sets. Like and the vacancies that come from here end up being the one of the tougher toughest ones to fill, right? So blunt tools like rate increases is not going to, they're not going to fill that gap. Some of the tech layoffs will help, right? You're seeing massive layoffs at Amazon, Google, and Microsoft, right? So that will help fill some of the gaps in these hyper-specialized sectors. But again, remember, 20 to 30% of those employees are H1 workers. They're on visas, and you don't find a job in sixty days; they're gone. So, like, you have to kind of do that matching game really quickly. And then, number two is, where did that supply come from in the first place? You look at like it's no surprise a lot of these a lot of these hyper specialized engineers end up being migrants. And you look at stats of students coming from developing nations over the last twenty years. Up until twenty fifteen, generally, you had close to 800,000 students entering like stem program f1 visas into the us that number now sits at close to 200 300k so you're down by over half on these uh, on students that primarily come to the us for stem engineering programs so when i think of labor short and you know part of that is for india it's twice the currency is devalued china you have geopolitical tensions you would rather Not be sending your your kids to a country that could be adversarial to you in three four years, right? So because you just don't know where that tension is headed between the countries. So for me, that's a concern where I don't think rate increases will solve that problem, but but technology will. What we what we forget is tech adds to productivity, which eases some of the labor pains, right? And I think that's where there's a very interesting arb that I'm focused on between how tech helps break some of that labor pain that labor pain that we're seeing right like, like take, look at what happened with southwest last week for example like that their operational system completely broke down 90% of it is weather related yes but if you look at how, what they published it was a technical failure of their systems to be able to track their employees and because they work on this like non uh, primary hub model you contract your employees you contract your pilots you can't get on these. You can't get these flights going in such quick order. It was a technological failure. Throwing hundred people at it will not solve that problem. They need to invest in tech, and they need to invest in the right, again, hyper specialized employees that can help facilitate that problem for them. Right. So for me, the confluence of those two is a very interesting place. I think that a play that will take take place in the next year or two. Right. Long-winded way of me saying, one, labor issues will not dissipate next year. That's my view. And what that means for rates is the Fed can't step off the pedal as soon as the market expects it to. So because the curve is inverted, the market is telling you that, no, the Fed will start easing towards second half of 23. I just don't see that happening. I mean, I think they'll just keep it longer than, maybe they won't hike it just to not cause more pain. Because once you keep hiking and that pain passes into housing, then it's like Pandora's box. You don't want that kind of recession. So I think they'll keep it flat where it's sustainable and these labor issues sort itself out, right? So that's that's definitely one view that I think the market's not pricing in. And the, the other one being the confluence that I said, how do you play that labor versus technology gap, right? Let's take one example, we have a problem with birth rates in the US. And we have less than 2000 doctors that can administer IVFs in in the US because you're again, people are getting people having children later and later in their life cycles, right. And right now, on average, it takes I'm just giving an example of how technology solves something, right? It takes a couple 160 to 150 hours to go through the IVF process. And using tech, if you streamline some of the training, some of the onboarding, some of the documentation process, that comes down to 30 to 40 hours. So one is you can either magically get 5,000 more doctors into the US, or you can increase each doctor's throughput by four times by just getting better tech in the house, right? So again, for me, like, that that's a sector I love, like we're investing in fertility clinics for that exact same reason, which is how do you get that ARP to work in your favor? Because if you can take an average practice, upgrade the tech, and figure out how you can optimize the, the vertical there, you're increasing revenues by 4x. That's productivity. That's fixing labor issues without actually fixing labor issues. And of course, getting more doctors in the door would help, but it takes seven years straight to doctor, right? So it's not like we have a massive pipeline coming in. But again, that's how you kind of bridge that, right? So that's number two.
0: I love these examples, Alex. Uh, sometimes people are critical of the technology sector for focusing on photo sharing apps and things like that. But these are great examples showing how technology can directly increase productivity, which is very important for the GDP growth um, of the country. Love it.
1: Yeah, and there's tons of these. And that's what excites me most going into 23. Like there's there's a ton of these arms between labor and tech, right? And, and it's going to be exciting. And so the number, number three here is this play between real estate and climate change, right? So real estate, family office, it's been a family office favorite sector, right? Because the steady asset class throws off cash flows, tax efficient because you can take massive depreciation on it, right? The the concern that I have here is, and well, actually, before I get to the concern, an asset class that I also like a lot and I follow very closely, and I think we've talked about this this in the past, Olga, is reinsurance. It, it offers a, a very attractive risk reward. I mean, this year, just to give you an example, like reinsurance premiums are up by 100% and deductibles are up by 400%. So what you, so if you're buying reinsurance bond that you know you yield anywhere between 10, 20, 30%, you're making double the premium and your deductibles are 4X higher, which means for you to lose money, losses need to be 4X higher before you start paying money on the reinsurance and you're earning more d- double premium for it great sector but then again same issue as a subprime crisis we often forget correlation right reinsurance going up means yes i make more yield as an investor but insurance goes up insurance goes up which means that is passed on straight to the to the prop commercial property owner or the asset that's in question and on average a doubling of premium is a NOI, net operating income, hit to the property, right? And that is straight hit to the asset value of the property, right? So while reinsurance is great and asset values are a stable asset class, if you ignore correlation between the two, you could be caught at the wrong end of both trades. What I mean by that is if you have, let's say, coastal properties, right? Let's pick anyone, like Miami or Palm Beach, wherever. Commercial properties, and you have reinsurance that's focused there. What you could have is you could get backed on the reinsurance because you have bad climate change issues on the coast and you lose property value. So you're on the wrong side of correlation, right? So, something, uh, you know, an asset class where I defer on is real estate, which I think will become more selective going forward, which is I think reinsurance will get reinsurance has been a, again, like interest rates, a very blunt tool. It's not been sector specific it's not being zip code specific like there are like california has tons of these examples where like you'll have areas that are prone to wildfires and areas that are not but they pay the same and it's been a very blunt tool and that's again another sector we're focused on the tech side which is the kind of granularization of insurance and reinsurance right especially across the commercial sector so that's another area right i differ a bit in terms of you start seeing sort of a a high selectivity criteria on home assets based on climate change.
0: Well, great. And lots of ideas for entrepreneurs of where you could be building um, technology to solve some of these issues where the opportunity is. Um, So let's move to our next topic. Um, Recently, we've seen the rise of structured equity deals as companies try to avoid down rounds. Um, What's your take on debt for tech companies in general? You know, maybe explain the structure of such deals and um, pros, cons for founders, early stage VCs and employees.
1: Yeah, so I think before I I hit that topic, let me just, I mean, let me just zoom out for a second, right? On a macro basis, again, this is my zoom out, zoom in kind of perspective here. But if you zoom out for a second, what happened over the last couple of years, especially last year, was kind of this, you saw this proliferation of financial products, all financial products into all asset classes. Like what I mean by that is traditionally, PREF equity was a venture instrument, debt and loans were for mature companies, like public markets and PEs were towards well-governed and mature companies. But then we started playing around with that concept, right? So like, for example, last year or two years ago, through SPACs, like we saw pre-revenue, low revenue companies come out into the public markets, right? And same with private equity, they started delving more into venture. So, like you have this kind of mixing of asset classes and financial products, which has been super interesting. And some have worked and some have not worked. Clearly, I mean it's no secret, SPACs have struggled, right? That clearly has not worked so well. But this crossover of private equity into venture, again, that's a TBD story. We, we don't know how that plays out, but we'll see, right? All right. So let me let me just take a crack at what structured equity is, right? So for me, when I look at structured equity, it's a combination of a debt instrument plus equity like features, right? Versus versus preferred equity, where you have a liquidation preference plus upside participation rights. And when I say debt instruments, that's where founders really need to focus on the structured equity instrument, which is the covenants that the debt has and the constraints that they put on your growth on a whole. And and when I say covenants, like, for example, some of the examples I've seen is um, if your ARR does not perform in line with your growth like the interest rate picks up or the warrant coverage on the debt instrument picks up. And warrant coverage essentially is penny warrants issued alongside the debt. That's the equity participation piece of the structured equity component, right? So if you think of a $100 million loan, generally you'll see 5% to 30% warrant coverage, which means you'll be issuing 5 million to 30 million worth of equity alongside the 100 million of loan that's been issued to you, right? So that's what we say 5% to 30% warrant coverage. So that's generally how this this debt instrument gets equity like features. Now, where founders have to pay attention is because these are debt notes at the heart of it, they come with covenants. Again, as I mentioned, ARR performance covenants. You have uh, gross margin covenants like you will be rated on the projections you put out right these are because again remember debt the grassroots of debt sits around stable businesses you're under you're you're being underwritten to a stable ish business and you're putting confines around how your business modulates around margins around product innovation and around arr growth right so the advice i give founders is one one right off the bat is you need to have a very strong general counsel and a Chief financial officer or a financial analyst, because you need to go through your financial plan and marry that to how the loan is structured, right? Because, hey, can we meet these projections we put out? Because if we're doing preferred equity venture round, if you if you miss by 30, 40 percent or even 50 percent, like that's okay. And honestly, we underwrite to that, you know, we underwrite the huge misses. But but in some of these instruments, the volatility that is afforded to you is very low. So you have to. Because because the repercussions of a of failing on a debt instrument is heavier than venture instruments, right? Because these will have interest rate pickups that affect your cash flow. These will have board flip clauses, clauses, right? Where you could you could not lose control, but have more tighter controls put upon the company, right? So those are those are factors that I ask founders to like be very cognizant of, like. And more more so founders that have bootstrapped their company and have generally a steady, figured out their product, have a steady revenue base and cash flow base, like that products work well because you figured out the product, you have cash flows, and you go off by a bit on margins or on revenue, because you're generally bootstrapped, your cash flow margin, your cash flow profile is generally healthier, right? So you can afford to have some volatility. But if you are a traditional early to mid-stage company, you, you really have to think hard on can do you need the volatility? Because like just my own examples, I look back at companies I've underwritten three to three to four years ago, and they've done amazingly well. But I ri- look at my memo and I look at this is what I think the product will be. This is what I think the revenues will be. This is how I think they will grow. And I've been, you know, horribly wrong. But I was, but we were right on the founder, right? And that's Almost all that matters, right? Because they they pivoted, they figured it out, and they launched new products, right? So if you still need that level of malleability, a structured equity round may not be for you. But if you figured out product, you figured out revenue, you figured out pricing, or any combination of the three, you're like 60 70% there, then I think that's a product that generally fits, you know? And that's where I caution portfolio companies, is like, think through what level of control you can give up versus how much confidence you have in your financial projections, right? So that, I think, is one of the key factors that I look for in structured debt.
0: Yep. And what are some of the other clauses that founders should maybe pay attention to as they consider these types of deals? And um, also, how should they think about best financial partners um, to to choose for these types of transactions?
1: Yeah, so clause is really important, right, especially in companies that are capital intensive, like, for example, fintechs, certain structured equity instruments would put restrictions on SPVs. Like if you're a, you know, factoring company or a company that needs to raise a warehouse facility, like having structured equity put, could put limitations around creation of SPVs, which are complex, right? So you because that level of if you're taking a venture financing round, that is you know, there is no restriction on SPVs. There is no restriction around raising warehouse capital, right? Or raising additional debt even. So that is one covenant that particularly becomes really important for fintechs in particular that are capital intensive. Now, there could be other sectors that are like, you know, R&D based tech companies are also capital intensive. So I would caution them on, you know, going, looking through, reading through those covenants, right? And then there's limitations on, not limitations, but there are covenants around M A. There's covenants around uses of cash flow, right? So if you need to acquire out a smaller competitor, like there's covenants around using debt-related cash to acquisitions versus running op- day-to-day operating businesses, right? So there's covenants around that. Um, so those are like your two main covenants that I would I would focus on. And then in terms of choosing a partner what I say is generally pick folks that can stomach the volatility that your company will throw at them. Right. So like in the venture space, I think credit to the venture community, like very adept to stomaching volatility, like change of plans. Good. Yeah. Let's figure out what the reason is and let's go for it. Right. Cause that's, that's the goal. And we're okay taking a zero on certain companies because we know some other found some other companies will be home runs for debt your best case scenario is you get your money back plus interest and some upside but you're you're not making 100x return on portfolio companies you're making 1.5x 2x moic on some companies so your propensity to take losses is very low so when you're pivoting debt partners think can i take this volatility or should i try to sell this company to a private equity participant And then they can be part of a bigger conglomerate and grow in there. Now, again, that may not align with the founder's vision, but they have the rights to do so, right? So I think that's where you really have to be careful around uh, being able to stomach volatility. And there are a lot of partners out there that are truly venture minded, but play in debt, right? And, And that's where I think the value sits. And it's really a good instrument. It's just that it, it's you know not. I can't sugarcoat this. It gives a lot of rights to the to the lender, versus venture. The power is attributed to the founding team and the management team, right? So there is a difference in balance there that that founders have to take into account for.
0: Yep. And let's talk about um debt capital landscape in general. Um, you know, in the last few years, you had a lot of tech enabled lenders become quite active, a lot of you know, SaaS financing platforms, things like that. So, what's what's happening in that sector today, given you know, general rate hikes and riskier pricing in the markets?
1: I, mean, I think you've nailed it in the question itself with like tech enabled lenders. That's the key word. And again, like tech companies, are tech companies, their architectures are super sophisticated, they're API-based, they're microstructure-based. So if you're a tech-enabled lender, the amount of data you can get from, from companies in an automated way is phenomenal. Like you can link to QuickBooks, your ledger, you can link to CRMs, sales pipeline management systems, ERP systems, bank accounts using pla- Plaid, and then payments using Stripe. You, if you're a sophisticated lender, and we've seen a ton of these pop up, you don't need to ask for financials anymore. You you have them on a weekly, daily basis if you want to, right? So the level of transparency that's afforded to some of these tech-enabled lenders is phenomenal. So underwrites are very quick, especially if you're a stable business. So, but it's a double-edged sword. Underwrites are quick, but you're also any glitches in your system will be seen on a week-by-week basis again. Us as venture investors, our board meetings are quarterly, semi-annually, right? If like, do you want to be giving weekly updates and then being asked questions around it? So, again, pick a partner that can stomach the volatility, really. Otherwise, you're you're really left with someone with a lot of visibility and not being able to handle the volatility, right? But but it's a good thing overall for the market. I do think these tech-enabled lenders have sophisticated underwriting models and diligence is very transparent because you have a direct line of sight into what your sales people are telling you, what your pipeline looks like because you're linking into the the sales management systems, your CRMs, and you are linking directly to the bank accounts. You're linking directly to the transaction systems, right? So your financials are way more live and, and, for lack of a better word, genuine than, hey, I expect to do 4X revenues, you could immediately pull up the sales management system and say, hey, no, your salespeople are telling you their your pipeline looks like 1.5X growth. How are you getting to 4X, right? So your underwriting becomes more thorough because of tech-enabled kind of factors that are being brought into underwriting versus the traditional DD phone calls that were used to at Wall Street, right? So I think that's definitely a big sea ch- change we're seeing come into tech-enabled lending space. And it's a good thing, but at the same time, who is seeing that data and what they're doing with that data matters, right? But overall, I view this as quicker underwrite, more innovative product, more more product innovation on a, because it's not one model fits all, right? As you keep getting more data from companies, the I think the overall structuring of this kind of structured equity instrument will change. Right? It'll be more covenant light in certain areas where, like, hey, oh, you need warehouses because you're you need to create off-balance sheet structures to house this lending risk. Right. We don't want this risk. So, like, okay, let's help, let's create a covenant relief for that. Or, oh, hey, looks like you need to have a more moderate growth now to figure out your pricing model because look, your, your salespeople are changing your pricing structures around. Right. So you can see that more transparently and price that in. Versus you underwrite to what the founder is telling you, like traditionally what, how it's done is you create, you know, you create data rooms, but you, you listen to the founder pitch and you're like, all right, I'll, I'll underwrite you on this. I'll, I'll create goalposts around this. And this is your instrument versus data just liberates you and creates more innovative structures, right? Overall,
0: And part of the reason that they became tech enabled lenders became so successful was because they have more data because they can do continuous underwriting they were also able to price some of these instruments tighter right so companies could raise at lower rates so what is happening now as potentially tech enabled lender cost of capital is going up right and and especially with some of the newer players which you know maybe came up in the last few years um, you know how how active are they? Um, are we seeing some of that risk repricing? Um, you know, as as you know, we work with very early stage companies, and many of them need, you know, their lending needs are not huge. And we all know that in some ways, it's a lot easier to get a hundred fifty million dollar facility than ten million dollar facility, right? So some of the newer, smaller tech-enabled lenders filled that gap. But now as their own cost of capital is starting to go up, and maybe as some of them are also struggling with you know, raising financing to continue growing their companies, are we starting to see that risk repricing in that sector um, as cost of capital goes up?
1: Oh, 100%. The, I think these they are getting repriced live as we speak. and their capital is getting tougher to raise. I think a lot of these tech enabled lenders had an easier time raising their own warehouse facilities to, to do lending, but you're seeing the base level LPs pull back or ask for higher returns on their capital, right? Generally how these were structured was you these, these tech enabled lenders have their own warehouse lines that required anywhere between seven to 9% return on at the LP level. So that's how they could give these cheap financings at the at the tech company level because their warehouse is cheap. Now that's closer to SOFR plus nine or 10. So you're talking about 13%, 14% rate of returns at the base LP layer, right? Because again, it's not hard to go and find 10% returns in today's market. Last year, seven to nine percent was amazing, right? Because rates were zero. Now rates are at five, right? So you, you have to you have to make a spread on top of that. So you are definitely seeing prices go up. Underwriting is tighter because generally, you know, we generally tech-enabled lending dealt with the shorter end of the duration curve. You're doing ARR financing, right? These were like one year, one and a half year contracts, and the hope was, and I I built the, I built the platform at Serengeti as well, which does this tech-enabled lending to a, to an extent and we were always doing 6 month to 1 year financings because we were bridging the founder to the next round right and if it was a series A to series B or series B to C a lot of the mid stage growth stage venture funding has you know slowed down or dried up in certain areas right so the tech enable lenders now are hey what are we pricing what are we what are we what's our end game here are we are we long term holders of this Because that's not what the underlying LPs have priced in. The underlying LPs are hoping to reinvest, reinvest into one-year, two-year instruments into good companies, right? Not giving three, four-year loans to tech companies. So the conundrum now is duration. How do you bridge for how do I give two-year loans, still make good returns, and be confident this company can find fund the next round in two years, right? So there is a little bit of. You know, cat and mouse being played here in the market right now, where either rates need to go high, where the underlying LPs are, hey, okay, that's 25% returns. That makes sense. Let's do that bridge. And then in invariably, as you get to 25% returns, your ARR financing starts looking a lot like structured equity, right? So it kind of transitions from being a simpleish low-covenant product on the tech-enabled lending side to a very structured, high- interest high upside participation rate instrument right so that's where that's why i think structured equity is so important to pay attention to because people are gravitating towards that instrument that offers some equity and some debt like features that is a sweet spot for some of these underlying lps to justify keeping lending keeping lending continuing for for that sector
0: Right. Um, So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, the current investing environment. One of the things that lots of people have been discussing is that um, we are at the end of this very special environment of low interest rates. Government stimulus muted until very recently inflation. And um, most of the investors have never allocated capital in conditions which were different. So, um, what's your take on how investors should update their mental models in um, in this new environment? Um, what risks are you most focused on? Where do you find the best compensation for risks?
1: Yeah, so I'll start with again uh, the again keeping in line with the zoom out, zoom in concept. Overall, I don't think in credit or private equity generally, and I'll talk about VC a little later. I don't think I'm getting paid enough for taking long-term duration risk. Like a lot of the factors for liquidity and duration, I don't think are priced in, right? But before I go into that, you asked about mental models, so like I'll, I'll I'll give you like my outlook of how I view risk across different sectors, and then we can delve into which sectors I like and, and which areas I like, right? So when I so when I look at an economy or when I look at certain sectors. I put it down into three layers. It comes down to your bottommost layer, looks at your fundamentals and raw materials, right? Let's take US as an example, right? So as a country, we have a ton of raw materials. We have oil, we have minerals, we have, you know, we have precious metals, and we have labor. That's also raw material, right? That forms like my fundamental layer of lowest volatility easiest predictability you can't fudge oil numbers labor is basically how many people you have working for you right and then on and that's the lowest duration asset class you're investing in oil like it's yes there's variability on the price of oil but you kind of know what reserves you have and what you can kind of project out so it's a the lowest duration asset class and then the second layer that sits on top of the raw material layer is kind of what i call the regulatory or governance layer so for example you have US, for the US, you have you have our Congress, you have policymakers that sit on top of this layer that basically regulate how our raw materials at the layer below are used, right? How do we drive our labor usage? How do we drive up or down our labor usage through fiscal policy, monetary policy? And then that combination of two layers essentially creates a third layer, which I call as a productivity layer, right? So everything we do in tech sits on that productivity layer right for me that's the longest duration asset class because i like tech innovation allows you to look 30 40 years out sometimes right so the bottom layer the fundamental layer is a short duration layer government layer is like a medium duration again not same for all like certain countries see regime changes and i The U.S. does not have regime changes like we have a two party system, but generally we agree on most things, you know, and there are huge differences. But generally, economic progression is a common theme across both parties. You know, so I would say we have good duration on our fiscal policies. Right. But certain countries you don't. You see see re-elections every two years, three years. So you're fundamental to political layer that has volatility, which doesn't allow you to create a productivity layer. That's effective, right? Why the US does so well is because we're rich on layer one and we have a really good layer two up until now that allows us to see 30, 40 years out, right? So, like last year, yes, rates were zero, but we could create good fiscal regulatory policies and use our labor and raw materials well enough to price companies 30 times revenue because you could see that far out and feel comfortable that we are in a situation where we see innovation drive revenues picking up for this sort of duration, right? Because you're doing the 30x revenue that has come in today, but still it's not, you know, it's still within reasonable ranges, right? So that's kind of how I see the mental model of how I structure things. And for me, any volatility in base layer one and two means the value in base layer three comes in very quick. Like, Russia Ukraine cost raw material volatility at base layer one we had to adjust fiscal policy and what happened to base layer three Revenue multiples went from 30 to 10 right because you cannot see far out you're you're including volatility in the system your multiples come in right so that's what I mean by I the market still has't priced for in for me the risk of climate change the risk of China us tensions there are a bunch of factors that are still long duration but not mispriced where i still feel like on at least publicly traded or private equity like instruments i can't look out 10 years and say ah that's a that's a fair price that makes sense everything is priced in right so that's where i am concerned but where i see opportunity is again on the disruptive side right times when revenue multiples come in are the best times to deploy into productivity cycles. So I look at VC and I look at transformational tech, I can, on the early stage and mid-stage particularly, I can create some of these companies extremely cheap. I know we have healthcare issues. I know we have an aging population. I know we need senior healthcare tech. We have energy, we have climate change, we have energy transition issues. We have, as I mentioned, uh, birth rate issues. Right, so these are again sectors that I can invest in at extremely cheap today, but I know are thematic and not priced in by the markets today. Right, so those are areas I focus on, particularly on the mid to early stage VC side. Right, and then the other example I gave prior was uh, I I see IVF as a kind of a middle market play, but I love the middle market sector again because it's so granular, hands-on, mom and pop-driven businesses. Like think dentistry, private care, private care practices, veterinary is played out. But again, veterinary, these are generally like 70, 80 percent of the market is owned by mom and pops, right? Like PEs and the and the credit funds of the world are generally playing in the 10, 20 percent area of the market, right? So there's still a lot of consolidation that comes into this place, and, and same as IVF, like. A forex throughput is unique, and, and I've never seen that before. But it's it's possible in this particular IVF case. But for for places like dentistry, private care, incorporating tech into like claim collections, insurance collections, like recovering, you know, having your having your patients pay on time, there's massive upside to including tech in the in these verticals. So taking these boring businesses and creating vertical tech stacks for them. I think it's extremely attractive. And then owning that asset is extremely attractive because you're getting the benefit of one, the technological innovation, and two, the revenue and the profitability upside that comes from that asset class growing alongside the tech, right? So you're getting best of the VC side and also the PE side, because you're enabling one to the other. And I, and I think broadly, that's why you've seen the likes of You know, inside and these other funds step into VC because they see the need of, hey, in the past, right, you had no inflation. So you you didn't care where revenue growth came from. And you can only do it two ways. One is you can grow customers or you can raise prices. In zero rate environments, raising prices, very high price elasticity. So you can actually price whatever you want and grow revenues. But in inflationary environments, customer acquisition is very tough. Like, I mean, look at our B2C, like, I mean, take take a sector, like look at neobanks. right? They're trading 95% below their last round because customer acquisition is extremely expensive and they're not spending. So you have no pricing power. So I think that confluence of no pricing power plus needing technological innovation is where you're seeing kind of this combination play come in. But that creates a lot of investing opportunities between VC and PE of taking these verticals and creating tech companies out of them, right? So That's definitely a sector that i'm watching fairly closely
0: um you know let's let's talk about um the area where you spend a lot more time than you know than i do or village global does climate tech Um, so what are some of the latest investable opportunities in climate tech Um, how's the current wave of climate tech investing different from the earlier ones
1: i think um with climate tech, what I focus the most on is going back to the mental model, like layer one and two, right? We look at climate tech is still in its in in its, I would say it's, it's been around for a long time, the word has been around for a long time. But in terms of putting layer two together, which is we have the raw materials, we have, we have renewable energy ideas, but policies, government policies are only recently being set up. What I mean by that is like Inflation Reduction Act, like Paris Accord, like these are Very nascent policies that are being set up globally to attack climate change. Right. So I think where I focus on most is around hey, what are the raw, what are the fundamentals around layer one and where are the policies guiding you on layer two? Right. So, like, you look at onshore capital. If you have onshore capital, you should totally be investing in US renewables because the amount of like tax abatements you get being 100% US owned company and running here is phenomenal like same as like for example the 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 CHIPS act that was passed right if you're onshore capital and you're investing into like chip fabrication facilities in the US like the the amount of like benefits you get on tax abatements on long term capital investments are like you almost pay no tax and you actually get money in right so same with renewables i think I think focusing on investments that are sort of in line with policy is key. Right. So again, that's how I focus, that's how I look at these things, right? And even with when I say energy or climate change, we also include net gas. We also include like it's not magically going to disappear. There are sectors within traditional energy that are super attractive as well. But because crude oil prices are not cratering anytime soon, like Russia's, you know, curbing supply to the West so you have to compensate for that so that is also an attractive investment area for us but for me like investing in renewable infrastructure is extremely attractive and then going back to the productivity layer is what what are the applications that I see come through out of the system now for example one is how do we accurately measure footprint like if you look at the estimations that go on like hey the average footprint of a company is x tons per year, and you start digging into the details, it's mostly made up numbers. It, you're taking your bank account statements, and you're like, oh, you flew a flight, or oh, you paid energy to pg You e uh, So this is kind of roughly how your footprint looks like. And we will estimate your, your carbon footprint to be X. But, you know, if you really, if you, my philosophy is, if you really want to tackle something, you have to measure it, and you have to measure it accurately, right? So I think, step one on the tech side is how do we start measuring carbon footprint accurately we have the tools we have the raw materials we have the policy we just need to build out the tech so that again those are areas where i focus on a lot and then in terms of investing particularly outside of the us we look at for example the voluntary carbon offset market right again to my point of crude oil is not going anywhere we need to burn fossil fuels to get to get the world's GDP back on track because again we're in a we're in a recessionary environment right so like a lot of the day-to-day activities we do depend on us keeping our carbon footprint steady right versus the world is planning for a reduction in carbon offset so for that to kind of match you need to have outside influences coming in which is why we look at voluntary carbon offsets which is essentially reforestation programs right that's something one of my portfolio companies aspiration does, which is matching up enterprise carbon footprint to reforestation projects such that, yes, I can't stop my carbon my carbon production overnight, but I can offset them while I come up with plans for eventually over a two-year, three-year, five-year period to dissipate that carbon footprint, right? So for us, those short-term investments are extremely accretive because that's how you tackle it while we go figure out fusion and hydrogen cells and EV cars, right? And again, all of those three sectors are extremely attractive, not my skill set, so I don't focus on them all that much. But again, there that's where I think you will see a lot of the carbon footprint reduction come in. But in the short term, how do you offset it? I think it's through voluntary carbon offsets for some of these companies to match that. So that's, again, something we're focused on alongside renewable investments. That's kind of
0: uh, where I see it. And let's finish on a more personal note. Um, Tell us about a hobby that you enjoy and what is something about uh, that hobby, that activity that maybe many people don't appreciate?
1: Well, um, it's actually, I have a second career that I've done for longer than finance. So I've been a sound guy for actually uh, like multiple public events. I do like the sound like modulations on the mixer and sound checks for bands and music, music bands. I've done that for the last, I would say 22 years and I've been in finance for 14. So I've technically done sound. I'm an AV engineer longer than I'm a sound than I'm a finance person, but it's a fun exercise. I mean, sound engineering is basically looking at multiple frequencies that are emitted by making this sound too scientific, but frequencies that are emitted by singers and musical instruments and figuring out what's the best optical like what's the best optimization technique to make that music sound great and it it, again going zoom out zoom in how does the music blend together versus how does each musical instrument and singer sound and how do they sound good at a unique base level and then bring that up and combine them together right so and you can always see like i keep blending the same concepts into everything I do. Because for me, like that concept is really important that you need to be able to delve into the details and then also look at the holistic picture, right? So for me, a lot of the concepts I pull into finance are from like sound modulations, like looking at how different frequencies and musical instruments interact with each other and what fits on a certain high-frequency band or a low-frequency band or a mid-frequency band and which sound belongs where, and how do they correlate? Right, so that's definitely something I still every weekend. That's what I do. I mean, not all I do, but you know, that's most of what I do, and I enjoy doing that. So that's definitely something I I have a lot of fun doing, and it, and I feel like it adds a keeps my keeps the engineer in me alive because it's still somewhat more technical than the the financial stuff that I make up
0: overnight. Well, I love it. This could be a great topic for our next conversation. Um, Sound engineering and practical applications for the portfolio. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well,
1: hey, options pricing models is predicated on Brownian motions, which is basically motion of physical particles in the air. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if we can find applications of sound within uh, finance.
0: Well, I I love that. Um, Alex, it was great to have you on Village Global Stories and um, Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year, Olga. Thank you for having me.